the answer to the question, how do I share love with others? I have to have God's love. There's no way you cannot give what you do not have. And while in and of ourselves, we may have a little bit of love, it's not going to take long for that love to be gone. There's just not enough there to fill our own lives, much less share with others. We want to be able to do that. We want to be able to share love, to have compassion with other people on other people. We want to be able to look at others the same way that Jesus does. We want to have a heart full of tears toward others the same way that Jesus did. Jesus looked at the condition of man in his sin, in our sin, and felt so much compassion, so much love that he was willing to die for those sins, to pay the price for those sins. God loved us enough to send his son to die for our sins. And so if we're going to have compassion to the lost, which is a lot of what this series has been about, then we have to have that love. We're still in this is the last week in this series called Hearts on Fire, where the goal is to have our hearts set on fire by God so that we can set our world on fire for Christ. And a big piece of that puzzle is being able to view the lost the same way that Jesus does, with compassion and with love. We've learned in this series, there's a lot of components to this series. It's a four-part series, but there are several components. We've learned that it involves having our hearts set on fire by Christ. It involves having a passion for Jesus and his word, which we certainly should have. It involves having compassion for the lost, which we've touched on. We're going to talk even more about today having compassion, having a heart full of tears. That's what that means for the lost. We've talked about having endurance in the faith. We're going to face obstacles. We're going to have to overcome some things. We have to endure, and we have to have the courage to face those obstacles as they come. So all of these things, plus we have to stay committed to the mission, which is the Great Commission. We need to be committed to the mission that God has given us. This is what we're called to do. And if you look in Matthew 9, which is where we're going to be today, if you look in Matthew 9, Jesus is on his third journey through Galilee. Three times. And this journey probably included as many as 204 cities. Third time through, he's ministering to people, doing what he always has been doing, teaching, sharing with folks. But here in Matthew 9, we see him give an object lesson about compassion. If you'll look with me in verses 35 through 38, we'll see this lesson. In verse 35, then Jesus went to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he felt what? He felt compassion for them, because they were weary and worn out like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. The compassion, we want the love of Christ, the love of God, the compassion of God. The compassion of God, the compassion of Jesus will never be our own, nor will we ever have a heart full of tears to where we view the loss the same way Jesus does until first we have a change in our emotions. The first step we have to have a change in our emotions. The way we look at people, the way we view people has to change. In verse 34, the Pharisees have just accused Jesus of doing something terrible. They've accused him of driving out demons by the power of the prince of demons, Satan himself. Now, Jesus, as always, has the perfect answer. 
And if you look ahead to chapter 12, you'll see he gives a detailed reason why that's not the case. Because if he was doing it by the power of Satan, it would be Satan acting against himself. And that's like a kingdom in the midst of a civil war. Kingdom divided or a house divided cannot stand. So there's the detailed answer, but that's not the immediate answer. He's accused in chapter 9, verse 34. What does he do in response to the accusation? Well, he just keeps on doing what he's been doing. He doesn't let it phase him. He keeps on serving God. He keeps on doing good. And, and, and this is where we learn that sometimes we're going to face obstacles. We've talked about that as we attempt to fulfill the mission. Sometimes the best response to those who accuse us, to those who slander us, is just to keep doing what God's called us to do, to not engage. Sometimes we do need to engage, but sometimes, and later Jesus does, but at this moment, the right thing for him to do was just to keep doing good. Sometimes the best answer, we can always answer our critics by just doing good. There are times where it may require more than that, but at the very least, when all else fails, do what God's called you to do. Do what you know to do. There are a lot of questions about our faith, what we should be doing, but one thing we always know we should be doing is sharing Jesus with the lost. And Jesus just continues to fulfill the mission that God has given him. He continues to do good. Look at verse 35. He see, we see that he went through the towns and the villages teaching in their synagogues. He's been doing this. He keeps doing this, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. We see the same phrase earlier in Matthew, verse 23 of chapter 4. Jesus was going over all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Jesus had work to do. He, he, this was work that he had been doing, as we just saw. We backed up in chapter 4. He's been teaching. He's been preaching. He's been healing and ministering. And so when questioned, when challenged, he just continues to do that. Nothing is going to deter him from his mission. And that mission included everybody. He goes to the cities. And, and in the midst of the busyness of the cities, all of the challenges of city life, he ministers to those people in the middle of the city where there was government, finance, higher education. You had industry, art, sports, science, religion, entertainment, crime, all of the challenges of city living, all of the craziness of city living. He ministered to those people that lived in the city. But he also went to the villages where a man's life was basically his cow, his cottage, and his field of corn. I mean, that was his whole life. His farm was it. Not city living, but rural living. So he went to the inner city. He went to the rural areas. No one was too sophisticated for Jesus, and no one was too insignificant for him. He was just as comfortable with an educated man like Nicodemus as he was with an outcast like Zacchaeus. He went to any and everyone who was in need, which is everybody. He went to the sinners who knew they need, needed Jesus. He, his emotions, his attitude was that of compassion for those that needed Christ. He taught in the synagogues where people were coming to, to worship and to read, sing psalms and, and to, to hear the scriptures taught. He preached the gospel to people who came from all over to do that, from different parts of, of the area, the, the, the country, to, to worship the Lord. He showed compassion for those people that came to him. He would heal people of their illnesses. If they came to him with a need, he would heal them. He would take time to minister to them. Didn't matter what he was doing, he would stop. He continued to show compassion for the crowd, for the people, because 
as the scripture tells us, they were weary and they were worn out. That word compassion, he showed compassion, means to feel deep sympathy. He didn't just feel sorry for them. He showed, he felt deep sympathy for those individuals. It tells us, the verse tells us that they were weary. Why were they weary? Because they had been burdened by all of these laws and all of these rules and all of these regulations. If you look, the religious leaders, that word actually literally means to be torn apart by animals. The idea here is that these, these Pharisees, these religious leaders that should have been tending to the flock had placed so many extra rules on them that they could not do them all. And they were worn out. They were weary from trying to fulfill all of these man-made laws. Jesus summed up the entire Ten Commandments with two laws. He said, love God and love your neighbor. And that's the fulfillment of all of the law. My relationship to God and my relationship to other people. Well, in addition to that, the Pharisees had come up with a system of 613 laws. 613 260 or 365 negative laws, 365 thou shalt nots, and 248 positive laws, thou shalt. No one can keep up with all of that, and nobody could. They tried, and they tried, and they tried, and that's why they were so weary. That's why they were tired. They were worn out, verse 36 says. They were weary. They had been ripped apart. They felt that way. They were worn out. They've been trying to fulfill all these laws. It means to be downcast or to be thrown aside, distressed, helpless, the NIV says. That's how they felt because they had tried to keep all of these laws and they never measured up. And while all of this was going on, the Pharisees did nothing to minister to them. They weren't tending to their sheep. They were like sheep without a shepherd. The Pharisees looked down on them. They, they figured they were worthless. They weren't you, worth the effort of trying to help because they would never be as good as them. They would never be good enough, which is the, the description that fits all of us. If we try to be good enough, we'll never be good enough. We'll never measure up. The, the Pharisees had pretty much ignored them. In contrast, the Pharisees looked at them as people not worthy of their attention, but Jesus looked at them as helpless sheep in need of a shepherd. He looked at them with compassion. He saw them in their situation. They were weary. They were worn out. I mean, they they hadn't been tended to. And the fact that they were spiritually abused, he had compassion. A shepherd's supposed to feed the sheep, tend to the sheep, lead the sheep, protect the sheep. If they're sick, heal the sheep. The Pharisees were doing none of that. And so Jesus saw these people, the Pharisees were willing to cast aside as individuals as sheep that were in great need of a shepherd. So that's what he did. He became their shepherd. He showed compassion. And compassion here, a good definition, the way Jesus shows it here, compassion is an attitude toward a need that grows into an action that meets the need. It's not just, hey, man, I sure do feel sorry for you. I'll pray for you. Prayer's important. It's, hey, I see your situation, and not only do I feel sorry for you, I feel compassion to the point to where I'm willing to do something to help meet that need. The Pharisees weren't even saying, hey, I'll pray for you. They had said, you're not worth even the least bit of our attention. Jesus said, I have compassion on you to the point to where they're not being your shepherd. I'm going to be your shepherd. I'm going to to, to tend to you. I'm going to minister to you. I'm going to heal your, your sickness. I'm going to protect you. Jesus became 
that good shepherd. The actual word that Matthew uses here is interesting for compassion. It actually refers to somebody's intestines or their bowels, which is really gross. But it's basically saying that Jesus was moved so much that he he had a gut-wrenching empathy for these people. It also means that the way the Pharisees were treating these people they were supposed to be shepherding made him literally sick to his stomach. He was filled with sickness, with gut-wrenching compassion toward the people's condition and the way the Pharisees were treating these people. They were emotionally exhausted. The reality is things aren't that different today. I mean, how many people do you know are just completely feel like they've been torn apart by life? They're worn out. They're exhausted. They've been trying and trying and trying. How, how often do you feel that way? I know there are times where I feel that way. You're just exhausted and you've tried everything. Well, Jesus looked at these individuals, and this is important. He saw their physical needs, and they had them. All these people, he healed them. I mean, he met their physical needs. He saw the physical diseases they had, but he saw beyond that to the more important spiritual disease that they had. An earthly shepherd can only do so much to heal that sheep, but Jesus could go beyond the physical, and that's what he was willing to do. His compassion drove him to do what no one else could do. He had compassion, and we will never be able to reach the lost until we have a change in our emotions to where we share the compassion that Jesus has toward the people that are out there. We need to learn to look at people the same way Jesus does as sheep, lost sheep, in need of a shepherd. He knows the answer is not just fixing temporary things, but giving a new heart and giving a new life. And we need to look at people in need and see them the same way. We also need to have a change in our vision. A change in our emotions, we need a change in our vision. Jesus, the, Jesus in this, at this point in, Ma- in the gospel of Matthew, the, the disciples begin to take on a more prominent role. Basically, up to this point, Jesus has been teaching by example. He's, he, the, the, the philosophy at this point has been, you guys just watch what I'm doing. Take notes. And he's been healing, he's been ministering. Well, at this point, his teaching to them becomes much more emphasized and intense because they're about to take on a more prominent role. They've been watching, learning by watching. They're about to start learning by doing. And so he, he, he takes it up a notch. Their role is about to change. There's, a, there's an intent. There's intentionality here. There's a vision. Jesus' plan for the church was that once he was gone, these men he had been sharing his life with, investing in, and the people they would reach would carry on his mission, his ministry. So if he didn't fulfill his mission, the ministry would not continue. And he had a vision. The vision was very simple. And it's the same vision that we have. The vision is mentor and multiply. That's the vision. That was Jesus' vision. He mentored these 12 men. He equipped them and then sent them out, and they did the same. You can read through the rest of the New Testament. You can look at church history, and they did exactly what Jesus did. They mentored and multiplied, and that is why we're here today. The church has continued to grow because of the vision that Jesus cast so many years ago. John Phillips said, The crying shame of the church is that untold millions are still untold. So how well are we fulfilling the mission? Jesus says, though, the harvest is great. It was then, it is today. The harvest is great, yet 
Untold millions are still untold. That, that phrase, the harvest is great, is one of the most characteristic things Jesus said. I mean, how many times have you quoted that yourself? The harvest is great, yet we have such a hard time seeing the harvest, don't we? We, we have such a difficult time identifying, either because we don't want to, we're too busy, or we look at it as being too difficult. The Pharisees looked at, I mean, you got the same group of people, but seen in completely different ways. The analogy he's using is that of a farmer, and everybody listening to him would have either been farmers or at least been familiar with farming. And, and he's saying the harvest is great. Well, the Pharisees looked at the people who were lost as chaff to be blown away, and chaff was the part of the grain that was wasted. You would either allow the wind to blow it away or you would throw it away or burn it. That's the way the Pharisees viewed the people. They were worthless. But Jesus saw the same people and, and viewed them as a harvest to be reaped. The Pharisees, worthless people, Jesus, a fruitful harvest, worthy to be gathered and saved and used. Two different people, completely different viewpoints. So our question has to be, when we see the people in our lives, which way do we view them? Can we see the harvest? Jesus says the harvest is huge. Do we see the harvest? Are we able to see the, see the harvest? Sometimes we, we can't for whatever reason. And it was intentional. Farming has to be planned. You would, you would plant in October. You would harvest in April, the equivalent in our months. And, and there was a lot of work that went into it. Talked about the chaff that you would gather the harvest. You would bind it up and wait for the wind to blow as much of it away as you could. You would get rid of the rest. There was, there was a time and a specific time to do that and a way to do it and, and it was planned it was thought out and if you didn't follow the plan you might get behind you might not get as much of a crop as you needed I mean there was intentionality here and in the same way our evangelism has to be intentional we have to be deliberate it requires intentionality and listen it requires hard work we've got to be willing to do the work of evangelism and we cannot do it in our own strength it's too difficult for us to do on our own when we're fulfilling the mission that God has given us, we don't have the strength to do it on our own. Sometimes we don't see the harvest because we just can't. We're not looking for it. Sometimes we look at it and we think, gosh, it's just too big. The task, Lord, the task is too big. We can't do it. And in our strength, if we try to do it on our strength, we're going we're gonna to give in. We're going to eventually give out because we'll grow weary and tired. We won't have the strength to do it. We have to have a proper vision that includes a determination that's fueled by not our strength, just like it's not our love. It's not our strength. It's God's strength. It has to be done His way and His strength working in and through us. We need the right vision. We also need the right attitude. We have to have the right attitude. Jesus was moved with compassion. He saw the amount of work. He said, the harvest is great, but he said, the workers are few. Pay attention here, though. What does he tell the disciples to do? He says, pray. I mean, how many times do we agonize over ministry spots that are open and not filled in the church? How many times do we complain about the fact some of us are doing all the work and some of us aren't? Jesus says the right thing to do, pray to the Lord of the harvest. He knows the need. So he says, hey, folks, you guys, you, you, you let me take care of, of finding the workers. You pray so that you'll be doing what you're supposed to be doing, but also so that you'll identify those workers when I send them to you. 
Pray to the Lord of the harvest. And this, this, this word pray here carries with it the idea of longing for. So it's not just I'm putting you on my prayer list, I'm checking that off. It's intense, praying with an intense longing. Because we see the mission, we know, the, we know what's at stake, we know there are lives hanging in the balance, we know we need workers, we can't find them on our own, so we long for and we pray and our prayer reflects that deep longing. Deep, deep longing for those to participate. The passion that Jesus had for the needs of the crowds caused him to do what he did in the way that he did it. Those hurting people that we see all around us that the Pharisees would have said were worthless, not worth our effort, Jesus saw as fruit ripe, ready to be picked. That's how he viewed the lost. That's how he viewed people. We have to learn to view people the same way. We've got to have the same attitude that he had, that the harvest is great, and these people need Jesus. They are ready to be picked, not worthless. And if we do, we will be those workers that are needed. And if we pray like he tells us to pray with a longing and have that attitude, that sense of longing for those who need Jesus, then he will send those workers. We will identify those workers and we'll plug them in where they need to be. One of the great things about the gospel is that all we really have to do is just hold Jesus out in front of people, just show them who he is by the way we live and through our words, love them the way that he does. It has to be his love. All we have to do is do that, and it's amazing how people flock to Jesus on their own, not on their own, by the power of the Holy Spirit. When it comes down to it, we really don't have to do that much, y'all. I mean, it's, it's him. If we put him at the center of everything that we do, if we take on his personality, his characteristics, become more like him, and we exemplify Jesus, we live him, celebrate him in our lives, people are drawn to that. When you break it down, it's really not that difficult. It boils down to having the heart and the mind, the compassion and the attitude that is in Christ Jesus. But he does tell us to pray. James tells us in verse 516, the last part of that verse, he says, The effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Was prayer enough? Well, I mean, he does tell us to do more, but that answers the question right there. If if you are righteous, Jesus righteous, if you are living the way he wants you to, by his power, his strength, and you pray in line with his will, he's going to do it. He's going to answer it. Our job is to pray intently, longingly for more people as we're actively involved in the work. Complaining about not having enough workers isn't going to accomplish anything. I've tried it. It doesn't work. Complaining is not what Jesus tells us to do. Pray with a longing that's reflected in my dedication to the mission that God's called me to. Praying and serving. And pray for people sent by God, by the way. Because if they're not sent by God, if they're self-appointed, then eventually they're gonna, their strength is going to run out because they're doing it in all their strength. They're not doing something God's equipped them to do. Pray for the right people that God sends for the right ministry positions. That goes for every lay position in this church. That goes for those who do not hold leadership positions. If you're a part of the body, you have a task, you have a function, you have something you're supposed to do. And that especially goes, how many times this week did you pray for the search team looking for our next student minister? Pray for the man that God has picked for that position. Because if he's self-appointed or if he's appointed by us and not God, it's not going to work out. 
It's got to be the Lord of the harvest who picks the workers for the harvest. And we pray and we do it in a, with a sense of longing. And while we shouldn't minimize the importance of prayer, we can't stop there. There also needs to be a change in our actions. There needs to be a change in our attitude that's reflected in our prayer and how we view others. But there also has to be a change in our actions. Jesus, he teaches, he shared his, what he was there to do. He shared the gospel, but he also ministered to people. He also took action. He talked to the Pharisees, hey, you guys are not doing your job. You're not taking care of the people that I have entrusted to you. But he didn't just tell them you're not doing the right thing. He stepped in and took action and took on those sheep himself as their shepherd. And then he tells the disciples, he teaches them. He spent a lot of time showing, teaching them by example, but he doesn't stop there. Now he's going to send them out to do the exact same things that he's been doing. Look at chapter 10, the next chapter, verse 1. Summoning his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the, what are they called this time? Apostles. Hmm. First Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. This is the first time they're called apostles. You know, we think 12 disciples, we think disciples and we think the 12, but there were a lot of disciples that followed Jesus. I mean, a disciple is just a student, a learner. There were a lot of disciples, but there were only 12 apostles. Apostle means one who is sent out. These were the men. These were the guys that Jesus chose they were chosen, set apart, and then ultimately sent out. And we know Judas was replaced, but there were still 12. These were the guys that were, were, were brought into his inner group that he poured himself into. He taught by example, and now he's saying, okay, now that I've taught you, it's time for you to start doing because I'm not going to be here very much longer. They were sent out, chosen, set apart, and sent out. And it's one of the, the amazing realities of the, the church as a whole, of this group of people, that Jesus got such a, a broad, diverse group of men with completely different personalities and brought them together in one united band of men who fulfilled his purpose in a way that changed the world forever. William Hendrickson writes this. He says, We cannot fail to be impressed with the majesty of the Savior, whose drawing power, incomparable wisdom, and matchless love were so astounding that he was able to gather around himself and to unite into one family men of entirely different and at times even opposite backgrounds and temperaments. He gives examples. Included in this band, the men we just mentioned, was Peter the optimist, but also Thomas the pessimist. Simon, the one-time zealot, having taxes or hating taxes and eager to overthrow the Roman government, but also Matthew, who had voluntarily offered his tax-collecting services to that same Roman government, same group. Peter, John, and Matthew, destined to become renowned through their writings, but also James the Less, who remains obscured, but obviously had to have fulfilled his mission. People from different backgrounds, opposite personalities. 
And this warms my heart because if God can use men like that, then he can use me too. And if God can bring together a diverse group of people like that to do something that changes the world forever, he can bring together a group of people like this with all different kinds of backgrounds, personalities. I've never pastored a church of people from as as many different areas as are in this room. I mean, we're going to parties, Sunday school gatherings, and I'm hearing your stories. You grew up across the country. Some of you lived overseas for several years. Different backgrounds from different areas, different personalities, some strong, some with more of a servant's heart, some leaders. It's amazing the diversity that's in this group, but the diversity that's in this group reminds me a whole lot of the diversity in the group that I just read for you. And if God can bring that group together, he can bring people from all walks of life into that that wonderfully diverse yet united group called his church. And he can use this church with all of the diversity, all of the different personalities, all of the different backgrounds, regardless of what your background is, he can take you as you are, make you what he wants you to be. And as long as we are operating, submitted to the Holy Spirit, he can use this group to do incredible things for his church, for his kingdom and his glory. But those guys, the reason they were successful is because they trusted the Lord and they obeyed the Lord. And then when it was time for the rubber to meet the road, they did what they were called to do under intense persecution, stress, challenges, obstacles. They did the work they were called to do, and they were willing to get their hands dirty to do it. Now, I, I know some of you are not very fond of germs. Uh, I've gotten to know some of you, and some of you are even more concerned about germs than others, and I'm going to read something that's just going to make you want to go home and burn your house to the ground. <laughs> there was a study that, that came out not too long ago. They've updated it a few times. Of the 10 most germ-filled things in your home. Some of you have probably read this, I'm sure, but I'm going to read it for you. The 10 most germ-filled things in your home. Number 10, I'm going to go backwards. Number 10 is cutting boards. Cutting boards are just are, are a breeding ground for germs unless you clean them. And even if you do, some germs still, still hang around. Stove knobs. When was the last time you cleaned the knobs on your stove? Because you're cooking, you're handling raw meat sometimes, and if you don't clean those things, that's just a breeding ground. Kitchen countertops. You clean them and clean them and clean them, and there's, there's so much that happens on those countertops. Pet toys. Pet toys. Yeah, when was the last time you cleaned the pet's toys? Your kids are playing with them and they're sticking their hands in their mouths. Here's one. Bathroom faucets and handles. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Because what do you touch before you wash your hands after going to the restroom? You touch the faucet. So those are just breeding grounds. And, and, and here's, here's one of my favorites. Number five, coffee maker reservoirs. They're dark and they're damp. So think about that while you're enjoying your coffee tomorrow. Just breeding. I mean, just all kinds of stuff grows in those things. You got you to gotta run some vinegar or something. Maybe, I don't know, some turpentine through those things every now and then. <laughs> Because they just grow all kinds of germs. Coffee maker reservoirs. Pet bowls. You got to wash those pet bowls every now and then. Even when you do. I mean, I've seen some of the things. Timmy finally beat us down. We finally got a dog. We hadn't had one in years. And I've seen some of the things dogs eat. And the pet bowls are nasty. Here's one for you. Your toothbrush holder. Toothbrush holders. 
nasty. You got to wash them every now and then. Just throw them away and get a new one every so often. <laughs> Kitchen sinks. Kitchen sinks are filthy because, again, all the cooking, all the other stuff, the number one most germ-filled thing in your home is the kitchen sponge. The kitchen sponge is filled with all kinds of nasty. It sits there on the counter. You don't dry it. You just leave it there. It's damp. It collects all kinds of different bacteria, germs, and I'll share a few with you. Almost all of them have E. coli in them, almost every one of them. 15%, there was a study done, 15% contained salmonella. 86% of sponges had mold and yeast present in them. 77% contained coliform bacteria, and 18% with, were filled with staph bacteria. But don't, don't worry, I'm going to tell you how to fix it. Do you know how to clean your sponge? <laughs> Throw it away. If you're a penny pincher, you don't have to. You can stick it in the microwave for one minute, and it'll kill all the germs. You see, when you come to church, you learn things. <laughs> Think of what you would have missed this morning had you not come to church. Stick it in the microwave. Now, listen, I, I'm not terrified of germs, but I don't like germs, and I certainly try to keep my kids away from germs. As much of a losing battle as that may seem, I try and we should. We should clean our houses. We should clean ourselves. We should avoid germs, make sure our kids are clean. I mean, that, that's great. But when it comes to the work of sharing the gospel, we've got to be willing to get our hands dirty. We've got to be willing to go and reach the unreachable. We've got to be, I mean, Jesus touched lepers. We've got to be willing to love the unlovable. We've got to be willing to get our hands dirty I'm not a farmer, but I know you get dirty farming. If we're going to bring in the harvest, we've got to be willing to do the hard work of sharing the gospel and fulfilling the Great Commission. We've got to be willing to put in the work. We can't be afraid to get our hands dirty. Romans 10, verses 14 and 15, Paul says this. He says, how can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? How can they hear without a preacher? I'm not, that's not just the guy up here, by the way. That's all of us. How can, they not, how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who announce the gospel, the good news, the gospel of good things. Jesus wants people to hear the gospel. One of the amazing things about the church is how diverse we are. The other amazing thing about his mission Kingdom work is that he chooses to use you and me to share the gospel. He doesn't need us. I mean, he could draw anybody to himself that he wants to. Now, I've heard stories where he's done that. But the, the mission, the vision, mentor and multiply. And so while he could do it on his own, he chooses not to require but to allow you and me to have a part in this. What a privilege what an amazing mystery that I will never understand, but yet what a privilege to be a part of this mission. If the mission's going to be fulfilled, according to Romans, you and I have to share. We've got to be willing to share the gospel. We have to have the same heart, the same attitude, the same emotions, view those people the same way Jesus did, to be willing to have compassion on them, but compassion that's not just, I feel sorry for you, compassion that moves to action, sees the need, moves to action to meet the need. 
We've got to be willing to do the work of the harvest, bringing in the harvest. Too often we either don't see it, and here's the greatest danger. Pastoring through the years I've pastored, the greatest danger is that we become satisfied with the harvest we brought in years ago. The harvest is still great. The workers are few. But God's got them picked. Are we willing to be a part of those that go out? It sounds contradictory, but if I had to sum up this series, this is how I'd do it. I pray that our hearts would be filled with tears, drowning in tears, yet on fire at the same time. Filled with so much compassion that we are eager, committed, fully dedicated to reaching the lost. And if we do that, if we can find that balance, filled with tears, on fire for Christ, there's no doubt in my mind and in my heart that we can set our world on fire for Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your wonderfully mysterious, incomprehensible plan of sharing the saving message of your son Jesus, Jesus, your death, your resurrection, saving the, sharing the gospel message with the lost. Thank you for, for designing it the way that you did so that we could be a part of that, giving us a place in your kingdom work. You don't need us, but you choose to use us. And God, I pray that each of us today, right now, first, that we would ask ourselves, those present here today, that we would ask ourselves, are, are, we, are we saved and secure? Do we know that we've been saved, that we've accepted salvation that only comes through your son, Jesus Christ? And Father, second, those of us who know you, we need to evaluate where are we working in this mission, bringing in the harvest? Are we doing what we've been called to do? Are we filling our role? Are we eager to work? Do we see the harvest? Do we view it as being impossible to bring in? Are we depending on you and your power and your strength? Are we able to love others and knowing that that's only possible if we are filled with your love, perfect love, that we cannot manufacture on our own? Lord, I pray that we would evaluate where we, to, where we are to be at work and, and just do what you've called us to do. Share the gospel, serve you, use the gifts and abilities you've given us. And Lord, there may be some here today you're leading to make other decisions of commitment in response to this. It could be church membership or, or even baptism. They haven't yet identified with this wonderfully diverse group of believers. Whatever you've called us to do, Father, I pray that we would allow you just to speak to our hearts and that we would just respond. Just do what you tell us to do. Be obedient to your word, to your call in our life. And do it to glorify your name, because it is in your name, that, in the name of Jesus, that we do pray. Amen. Would you stand for our time of commitment?